You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive, Sir Walter Scott said in 1808. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado. This is episode 435. Today is Wednesday, July 20th, 2022. And to start us off, I have that quote from Sir Walter Scott, author of the novel Rob Roy, which is excellent. If you have never had the pleasure, you should acquaint yourself with the novel Rob Roy. I actually have it as a goal in this coming year to read Ivanhoe, which is also by Sir Walter Scott. I have never read it, but if it is anything at all like Rob Roy, I think I would enjoy it very much. But this quote I have alluded to many times over the years because my mother used to make a passing reference to this line. Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. And I didn't actually even know who had said it originally. I just knew that my mother used to say it all the time. And she would say it usually in jest. But you go and look it up and you really think about it. And it's correct. We do weave a tangled web when we are trying to mislead those around us, those who need information. You can twist and turn and spin all you want, but at the end of the day, in him is light and there is no darkness. No shadow of turning with thee is what is said by God's word with regards to the character of God. God is not to be mocked. A man reaps what he sows, and all creation is naked before him. I had a call from a reporter today, and I have never had this happen before. It took me by surprise, actually, and I was a bit shaken, actually, at first, because I take it very seriously what might be in the public eye, and especially when I don't know the one who is calling me, and I'm not acquainted with their body of work, and the call is coming by surprise, I find myself a little bit rattled. Like, for instance, how did you get my number, sir? (laughs) That might be a question I would have. I didn't ask it. I just was polite and careful, and I hope sufficiently careful in the answers that I gave, not knowing how what I did say was going to possibly show up in the public eye. It's always a good idea whenever you are talking to consider the fact that God knows and God hears, and ultimately, he is the one who will judge. And so we should take special care with the idle words we speak. We should not be careless and we should not be frivolous. We should consider that life and death is in the power of the tongue. 
and even our idle words, maybe especially our idle words, are going to require an account from us to the judge of all mankind in the end. But I got this call from a reporter with the Montana Free Press. I was not familiar with their work. I have heard the title of their publication. I think I've even seen their newspapers at the grocery stores there in Sydney, Montana, back before we moved to Greeley, Colorado in 2019. I think I had seen their periodicals in print, and I don't believe I've ever read anything put out by them, good, bad, or indifferent. But the reporter who called me this morning wanted to ask me some questions about the situation with regards to Jordan Hall and his reason for calling me. I may not know how he got my number, but I know his reason for calling me was that he wanted to ask me some questions about the situation with Jordan Hall. And it turns out in the intervening hours that the Christian Post has picked up this story as of two days ago. Some of the knuckleheads in the comment section are questioning why the Christian Post deigns to cover a story about a pastor of a small church in a small town in eastern Montana with a population of 6,000. I think that is a very ignorant question to ask with respect. I don't know how respectful you can be and say something like that, but I do think that's a very ignorant question because we have this little thing called the internet these days, which allows someone even, yes, in a little corner of eastern Montana, to potentially, if they play their cards right, have an outsized influence in the national discourse. And even, yes, to have a kind of bully pulpit in the fullest sense of the term, disproportionate to the size of their congregation, disproportionate to the size of the community in which they pastor, by virtue of being able to skillfully wield online influence. Jordan Hall recently was removed from the pastorate. We are coming up on the one-month anniversary of him officially being removed from the pastorate, or at least the public being informed that he had been removed from the pastorate. FBC, which is Fellowship Baptist Church in Sydney, Montana, put out a official statement, which was corresponding to events on June 5th, 2022, where some kind of an incident brought to their attention his addiction to Xanax. And all they were prepared at the time of their public statement to admit to was that he had an addiction to Xanax. They were not to prepare. They were not prepared to give additional details uh, insofar as they were prepared to admit to the Xanax addiction. They didn't say what had brought the Xanax addiction to their attention. And yet, if you go back and watch Answering Our Accusers by David Morell at Protestia, which I recorded significant portions of and then my responses to here recently a few podcast episodes ago, if you go back and listen to that, David Morrill admits in that video that FBC Sydney leadership told him 
that there were other details surrounding the disqualification of Jordan Hall, which they were not prepared to make known to the public at that time. Which is to say, there was more to the story than just a Xanax addiction. And one can suspect reasonably that the response videos from Fighting for the Faith, starring Chris Roseborough, Justin Peters, and Phil Johnson, also response videos from A.D. Robles and John Harris, had some idea that Jordan Hall had been disqualified for more than just a Xanax addiction. A reasonable person might look at what was disclosed to the public and conclude that something, some incident, had brought a Xanax addiction to the attention of the leadership at FBC Sydney. But they weren't willing to admit publicly right away what it was. And here's the trouble. A lot of the interference that was run in between Caleb Snodgrass officially going to the Christian Post and admitting and fessing up, and when their official statement was released, and before that, June 5th, when the incident took place, which they were shortly thereafter made aware of, in between those data points, those dates and times, they decided that the selective sharing of information was as much as the public needed to know, and that any efforts from those outside of the FBC Sydney body to find out more were sinful. That cannot be supported from the biblical text. That is not a biblical approach to accountability, to the truth. There is no such stipulation in the biblical text with regards to someone who is recognized by all to be a minister, to be a teacher, and especially when they run a national polemics ministry seeking to hold pastors, leaders, authors, singers, and songwriters of other denominations, other churches accountable after a fashion publicly, or even to make up stories about those figures to get an audience for themselves, to get clicks, to become popular, to become famous, to become infamous if needs be, to get donations. When such is the character of the person in question, they have long since surrendered any right they might have had at one point to be a private person. And that's a fact. 1 Timothy 5 makes very clear from a biblical standpoint that, yes, you do need the testimony of two or three witnesses to bring a charge against an elder. And yet, when you have two or three witnesses who have testimony to bring a charge against an elder, the rebuke is supposed to be in the presence of all. And the scriptures are full of not just descriptive, but I would say prescriptive examples, wherein elders, even apostles, even are rebuked and corrected, not only publicly 
for the purposes of the local Christian community where they have been in error, not just for all of the Christian community more broadly throughout the known world at that time, but also for 2,000 years of Christian community to read and contemplate and consider and to learn from. And that is the stated reason for bringing a charge against an elder publicly as prescribed by 1 Timothy 5. For a local church leadership at Fellowship Baptist Church in Sydney, Montana, to play fast and loose with the definitions of some very important concepts as if they are the sole arbiters of what those biblical concepts mean is, I dare say in this particular case, very self-serving and very hypocritical. And it cannot be tolerated. It cannot be tolerated. In the presence of all means just that. It means in the presence of all. And I dare say, if you want to provide some kind of limiting factor, the best you can do is, however most broadly, the sphere of influence of that particular figure or church body intended to be. If the intended sphere of influence was the whole of American Christendom, then those witnesses to the rebuke need to be that same body which a sphere of influence was attempted to encompass. So, in so far as protestia and pulpit and pen and the polemics report were presented as unofficial or official ministries of FBC Sydney, where they knew what their pastor was engaged in or had a responsibility to know, even if they didn't always know, the correction and the rebuke ought to be as public as the indiscretion, as the sin, as the error. Now that said, here's an important thing that needs to be remembered here. For one, where fanboys of Protestia and Pulpit and Pen and FBC Sydney and, more to the point, the cult of personality surrounding J.D. Hall want to say, oh, this is totally unbiblical. You know what? Prove it. You can't just abracadabra that and you can't just wish cast that based on your affinity for J.D. Hall or however much you've wrapped up your own personal reputation with him. You can't just decide you like his brand and therefore you're going to have his back in this and therefore everybody who would oppose him is in sin and error and wrong because you said so. No. Fear God, man. You are not the ultimate authority. I am not the ultimate authority. J.D. Hall is not the ultimate authority. FBC Sydney is not the ultimate authority. Protestia, sure as hell, is not the ultimate authority here. God and his word, if we interpret sola scriptura faithfully, are the only infallible authority for Christian life and thought, period. You, me, everyone else, we are fallible creatures. And that's where we have to humbly submit ourselves to the biblical text. If you claim you are above that just by virtue of you being you, well, then you are an arrogant jerk. And 
you should not be allowed to claim that with impunity, and you certainly shouldn't be allowed to bully others into silence just because you're a forceful personality who's very confident of the things you believe. That is the whole trouble that Jordan got into here, is that he set that example and he was behaving that way for a long time. If you felt an affinity for him, take his situation as a very serious warning and fear God, man. Fear God. You can be angry with me for having taken a hardline stance against the way he was relating to people and to the truth. You can be angry with me. You can do what you please to me if God allows it. But you cannot change the fact that God is true and every man a liar. That includes you. That includes me. And humility dictates that you and I approach the throne of grace with humility, just as we approach it with confidence. So I did talk with the reporter from the Montana Free Press, and I did tell the reporter, here's what I know, which I feel at liberty to disclose to you at this time. Here are some links for you to go and check out. Here's how I would caution you to frame the situation as it stands right now. I answered some questions. I told the reporter in question, I would see if I could find some other people who would be willing to go on the record. But as it stands right now, I don't think there is any putting of the toothpaste back in the tube. As much truth as is out now, Caleb Snodgrass clearly believes, as his interview with the Christian Post makes clear, clearly believes it is best to just Tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth shall help you, God. And trust in God's grace. Now, I'm not saying that Caleb Snodgrass is telling the whole truth and nothing but the truth, but I am saying he's admitting to at least as much as came out in Service Christie's five-hour expose from last week. And in part, in large part, you have Service Christie to thank for that. Whatever else may be said of Service Christie, and I don't know what all may be said. I know that David Morrell, for what it's worth, not much in my book, had a very low opinion of Joshua Chavez. But whatever you think of Joshua Chavez, what he has brought forward in that five-hour and seven-minute expose has proven correct by the admissions publicly of Caleb Snodgrass and even, yes, David Morrill at Protestia, who is not terribly careful in the things that he says. He argues against himself, which is a very obvious and classic sign that you should take the testimony of this or that witness with a grain of salt, to put it mildly. Where David Morrill tries to make a defense of what they're doing at Protestia, what they have been doing, where he tries to claim that their hands are clean here, but also you should continue supporting their ministry because they're going to carry on as Jordan Hall would want them to. Pay very close attention to the timeline that he lays out as he's trying to make that defense. I think you will find that Protestia has thoroughly discredited itself, 
Not that everything they reported was not true, but that they are not the ones who should be in the position to report on these things moving forward, given their failure to hold J.D. Hall accountable. They ought to have, and the fact that there was no mechanism in place to do that, short of a domestic violence incident with his wife and his children, short of a embezzlement investigation with the Sydney Police Department, the fact that there was no mechanism to hold J.D. Hall accountable in any form or fashion and that they didn't see this coming, according to David Morrell, is proof positive that they should not be your go-to source for discernment ministry so-called, period. But all that said, I want to set aside the J.D. Hall situation as much as you probably do. Uh, I hope that you do, because I want to as well. I think that there's a lot of learning and there's a lot of edification that can come from this, particularly where we take seriously what God's Word says about qualifications for overseers and deacons, particularly where we take seriously God's commands found in the Scripture. Yes, even in the New Testament, no less does God give commands to us because of his grace through Jesus Christ. We should not presume on his grace, and we should not say that we should sin, that grace might abound all the more. God forbid, Paul says in the New Testament. But where we have here a clear and present example of what happens when we don't take the scriptures seriously, or when we are hypocritical, we do well to examine our own hearts, our own minds, in light of what God's word says. And by God's grace, we can learn from this and we can grow through this. Even myself, having been warning about Jordan Hall for some years, for several years, I can learn from this. I can be sobered by this. I am in no way trying to put myself forward as being perfect, having all the answers, but what I trust is God's word is faithful and true. God's character is good and just, and yes, even merciful. No, I do not believe that any of the men who have been elders or deacons or pastors at FBC Sydney should ever serve in church leadership again anywhere else. I think they have thoroughly discredited themselves, not just Jordan, I think that the rest of the leadership at FBC Sydney at present, unless they were run off prior to this, I think they have discredited themselves and they should content themselves to a quiet life, working with their hands, minding their own business from here on out. They should submit themselves to others who have been more trustworthy moving forward. But that's in God's hands to decide what he does with it, and where some and many and all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, my prayer would be that there is genuine repentance and that there is a genuine restoration by God's grace of relationships, that there would be a repentance where they admit their sin against God 
and they get forgiveness from God, and also where they ask forgiveness from other people they've sinned against, and that they would get forgiveness there as well. We have been forgiven much, and we have a responsibility to forgive as we have been forgiven. And we do well to remember that in relation to this situation. But moving on, because I do have some other things that I want to talk about mercifully, you may think to yourself, besides just the Jordan Hall situation, I have on a lighter note, a meme I'd like to share with you from a good friend of mine. I haven't known him for terribly long, but I like him and uh, I respect him. I think we disagree on some doctrinal, theological, political things. That doesn't mean he's not a Christian. It doesn't mean he's not a brother. And it doesn't mean that he is careless or unintentional in the way that he approaches the Christian life and thought that we discuss from time to time. But he did share a meme uh, the other day, or maybe it was last night. I thought it was funny. I commented on it, but the meme was as follows. It's one of those classic paintings of Jesus preaching and teaching to a multitude, probably during the Sermon on the Mount. And the caption, because it is a meme after all, the caption is, per Jesus, and I quote, Remember how Satan tempted me in the desert, offering me political dominance over all the world's kingdoms? When I'm gone, feel free to take him up on that offer. Now, that's very snarky, uh, obviously. And what I presume, and someone please do correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe I'm, mis- maybe I'm misreading this. I, I could be. Um, if I'm reading it correctly, this is a little bit of a jab at Christians who want to get very involved in politics and who believe we should get very involved in politics as Christians. That we have at least a liberty to, if not a responsibility to. This is a little bit of a jab at them. Now, it would have been more effective, dare I say it, if desert had been spelled with one S instead of two. And uh, that is to say, it was spelled with two S's instead of one. And uh, so the way it reads is, remember how Satan tempted me in the desert. And my imagination is overactive as it is. And I have a tendency to be a little bit of a stickler, I'll admit, for spelling and grammar. There's an excellent book I would recommend to you if you sometimes struggle with punctuation in particular. Eats, Shoots, and Leaves. Great book. Great book on the topic of punctuation. Pokes a lot of fun at punctuation done wrong. But uh, so also with spelling, where... (laughs) Uh, Along the lines of each shoots and leaves, I read this spelled wrong. Uh, Dessert instead of desert. Remember how Satan tempted me in the dessert? And I start imagining some giant pool of uh, chocolate pudding or something. And um, I know it's wrong. And 
Lord forgive me, but I was very tickled by a comment on my friend's post here by a certain Seth Stern, who I don't know. All he said was just one word, desert, but he spelled it correctly. And I replied to his comment to say, I remember it being desert also. Desert must have been one of them Gnostic Gospels. And uh, that's all I said. I, I could have said something different. I could have gotten argumentative, and I didn't. I just, I figured, you know what, I'll just, I'll keep it polite. I'll keep it funny. Keep it light. And so I did. And uh, and a large part of that is not just, it's not because I'm afraid or anything like that to uh, ruffle feathers <laughs> as uh, proof may be found in the first 25 minutes of this podcast episode with regards to the J.D. Hall situation. I'm not afraid to ruffle feathers, but I like and respect my friend too much to uh, make a fuss on his Facebook page. And uh, I certainly am not trying to offend him or anything. I might disagree on some of his conclusions as to how Christians should relate to political questions, political matters. Uh, But that does not mean that I want to embarrass him or upset him unnecessarily. I think I can... Uh, keep it civil by keeping it lighter, especially so long as it's possible to. So in any event, on a more serious note, (laughs) I think there is more to this than what at first blush it might appear. Christ in the scriptures does receive the nation's as his inheritance. And we Christians really should be upfront and honest about that. That is our view. Now, we are not Muslims. We do not suppose that our mandate is from God to force the world into submission to God. But where we have a responsibility, and this is an important distinction between Christians and Muslims, is where God says the civil authorities do not bear the sword for nothing. All scriptures breathed out by God. Paul's writings in Romans 13 are scripture, as Peter attests, when he says that some of the things that Paul writes are hard to understand. But as with all the scripture, which is to say that Peter affirms what Paul is writing is scripture, as with all the scripture— What Paul says in Romans 13 is God-breathed, which is to say that God says through the Apostle Paul that the governing authority, even, yes, truth be told, corrupt governing authority, is intended as a minister of God to reward those who do good and to punish those who do evil. Where governing authorities neglect their responsibility, abuse their power, misuse the authority which has been entrusted to them to do good to those who do good, to punish those who do evil, they will have to give an account. But generally speaking, it is a good and godly thing that we have civil authorities. In the case of Christianity, You have that statement emphatically made, and we are not 
all Anabaptists. Anabaptists, I was just watching a video that was sent to me by my neighbor, two houses down, J.P. Chavez. Uh, this afternoon, I didn't get to finish it, but I was most of the way through. Uh, really excellent video by a certain Ryan M. Reeve, Ph.D. Cambridge at Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary. Unitarians, Baptists, and Quakers. We are not all Anabaptists here, to be clear. But the Anabaptists held that Christians should play no role whatsoever in the civil government or in law enforcement or in the military. And I don't believe that's correct. And I say that as someone whose father was raised Mennonite and someone whose father grappled with what role the civil authorities are supposed to play in the matters of justice. Even when you come to the early first century through fourth century church being off again, on again, persecuted by the Roman Empire, and yes, civil authorities, it's easy to come back with a question of, well, hey, wait a second, if what, if what Paul writes in Romans 13 is correct, that the governing authority is given to reward those who do good and to punish those who do evil, what do you do with Nero? Well, yes, great question. I think what you do with Nero is you say that there's a difference between the ideal and what men do with what has been entrusted to them and what they do in relation to what is required of them, what is expected of them. For instance, it is true that husbands are commanded to love their wives and to live with their wives in an understanding way. It is also true, no less, no more, that some men, instead of living with their wives in an understanding way, loving them as Christ loved the church, laying his life down for her. Some men abuse their wives instead of loving them. These things are not mutually exclusive, that what those men are called to is to love their wives and to lay their lives down for their wives as Christ loved the church, to lead them, to protect them, to provide for them, to cherish them, to love them as Christ loved the church. It is true that they are called to that. It is also true that God does not force them to do it and that when they fail or stubbornly refuse to obey, they are at fault. God's standard is not at fault. Those men are at fault. If it is true that a certain minister abused his wife, strangling her, assaulting her, abusing her, threatening her with bodily harm, even up to and including that he would kill her. If it's true of a minister that that was the situation, it does not change the fact that he was called to love his wife instead. He was called to protect his wife instead. He was called to cherish his wife instead. He was called to serve his wife instead of abuse her. It does not change the fact that he was called to an ideal. So also, the civil authority 
being presented to us as bearing the sword for something to reward those who do good and to punish those who do evil does not change based on whether the civil authority is doing all that it is called to. A civil authority, even take for the most extreme example I can think of at the moment, Nero violently persecuting Christians, his having punished those who were doing good and his having rewarded those who were doing evil did not invalidate that he was called to something good and noble or that his purpose, the purpose of his having been given this authority was good and noble. If anything, it makes all the more clear what an evil thing it is he was doing or which other men who are in authority have done when they have that authority and they abuse it. It makes all the more clear how precious it is when men have power and authority and they use it appropriately. Now, before we run out of time along these lines, I would like to recommend to you a certain article by a Miles Smith at Mere Orthodoxy published July 18th, 2022, actually the same day. <laughs> The same day that the Christian Post published its article about the J.D. Hall situation after interviewing Caleb Snodgrass, acting pastor at FBC Sydney in eastern Montana. The piece by Miles Smith at Mere Orthodoxy is titled The Uselessness of Christian Nationalism. Miles Smith, it should be noted, is a historian of the American South, and also a native Carolinian. He can be found on the Paleo-Protestant podcast, which has also been, as many other things, which I can thank and praise my neighbor two houses down for having shared with me. This also has been something I only became aware of thanks to J.P. Chavez. But the uselessness of Christian nationalism by Miles Smith, is something you should read and consider. You really will do yourself a favor, whether you are to the left or a moderate or to the right, because he makes the point here, I think, clearly enough that you will be hard-pressed to argue it or dispute it. Christian nationalism is being used in an overly broad sense to essentially drive out Christian engagement of any sort in the public square. Christian nationalism, depending on who you ask, is as broad as any engagement at all in the public discourse by Christians. And that is unacceptable. If you define it overly broadly, so as to guarantee a secularist approach to all these discussions, you basically will have disenfranchised all genuine believing Christians from participating in the public discourse or in, as the left likes to trumpet, our democracy. 
you will basically have told Christians that they have no place in public life. Yes, you can keep it to yourself, but essentially what you're doing is you're telling them their Christian faith is not welcome, and if their Christian faith is near and dear to them, you're telling them they're not welcome. And historically, if you go back and you look at hundreds of years of history in the West, you will find that this has happened again and again. Sometimes it takes the form of communists railing against Christians. Sometimes it takes the form of the revolutionaries in France railing against anything they associate with the clergy. Sometimes it takes the form of Protestants purging Catholicism from public life. Sometimes it takes the form of, let's say, for instance, the Church of England purging the Presbyterians and the Puritans from public life. All of the above, I think, deserve close consideration for what they might teach us about the current moment we're in, where the radical left has essentially told Christians, sincere, genuine Christians, who do desire good for their people, for their nation, for their neighbors, for their families, you have no voice here. You have no part to play. And if I may, this is precisely also what allowed a character like Jordan Hall to get away with for as long as he did what he got away with in eastern Montana. Now, I'll be completely honest with you because I don't know how else to be and sleep at night. My biggest anxiety, what left me shaking after getting the call from the reporter with the Montana Free Press, my biggest anxiety was what if this guy is hostile to everything I believe in, theologically, socially, politically? What if he is going to take everything I say and twist it to try and destroy the conservative causes that I believe are correct, which I have spent so many years trying to argue for carefully, which I've spent so many years trying to work diligently to advance. What if he takes everything that I tell him and he twists it? I don't know who this guy is. I'm not trying to imply just because I don't know him. Therefore, he's going to do nefarious things with what I tell him. But you take my meaning. For the very same reasons that I tried to warn against enlisting Jordan in conservative causes years ago, I tremble and I shake at the thought that his downfall might prove prescient. The warnings I gave, and it feels a little bit like a lose-lose, if I'm honest. And again, I don't know how else to be and sleep at night. (sighs) But what we have here is a situation in which men and women in good faith Naively, yes, but sincerely, in many cases, we're loath to recognize Jordan Hall for what he was because they wanted a fighter to advance the causes that they believe are true and correct. And they should want many of those causes to be advanced. 
And that is the damned frustrating thing about what the left has done and is doing and very likely will continue trying to do for quite some time. That's the damned frustrating thing about it. As increasingly conservatives are disenfranchised, sometimes it isn't just a question of extreme. It's a question of corrupt. It's a question of scrupulous or unscrupulous. It's a question of with or without character. It's a question of consistently or inconsistently. Which sort are going to rise to the top and be allowed to linger because many are deathly afraid that to hold them accountable would mean throwing in the towel? The counterintuitive is that to not hold them accountable is to throw in the towel. You've already lost if these men cannot be told no. And moreover, if they are the kind who refuse to ever be told no, even when it is clear they are in the wrong, they are not trustworthy. They are not reliable guides. They should not be championing your causes. Another resource I would recommend to you is a certain podcast episode by First Things, which is, I admit, an outlet which has a decidedly Roman Catholic bend to it. I am not a Roman Catholic, nor am I especially ecumenical, but First Things Magazine has put out a great many articles, which I very much appreciate and agree with and find beneficial, particularly compared with the secular radical leftist fair, which is more du jour in broader society. I have very much enjoyed and benefited from First Things Magazine, and I just recently listened to their podcast for the first time after having just recently learned that they have a podcast, actually, for that matter. The greatest statesmen are thinkers. Daniel J. Mahoney joins Mark Barrelane to discuss his recent book, The Statesman as Thinker, Portraits of Greatness, Courage, and Moderation. Good stuff, by the way. About 30 minutes long. I probably shouldn't be recommending other podcasts to you on my own podcast, but I think this is an especially good one. And I think you would like it for very similar reasons to why I should hope you're listening to my podcast now. I disagree theologically with encouraging young people to go off to a Catholic university. But this podcast episode is good stuff. And I think we need to figure out how to make decisions about the collective good of our community if we are going to have Roman Catholics in our community and also Protestants in our community. I think we need to figure out how to be conversant with one another on things that we can find common ground regarding. So this piece here, this podcast episode, The Greatest Statesmen Are Thinkers, was good and worthwhile, and you should consider it. For instance, there's a gem of a quote from Alexis de Tocqueville regarding Napoleon Bonaparte, something to the effect, he was as great as a man could be without being good. He was as great as a man could be without being good. Alexis de Tocqueville is someone you should acquaint yourself with if you value liberty, if you value your country my fellow Americans. Napoleon Bonaparte was as great as man could be 
without being good. He was not a good man. He was a great man, but he was not a good man. That is to say, he was powerful and clever and masterful and majestic and genius, but he was immoral and unethical and ungodly. There's a quote also in this First Things podcast episode from Napoleon Bonaparte himself, and I quote, They wanted me to be another Washington. They wanted me to be another Washington. The French were hoping that Napoleon would have the character of George Washington. And the simple fact is that he didn't have that character. He wanted power. He wanted authority. He wanted as much as possible for as long as possible, as concentrated in his person as possible. And Washington, by contrast, was happy to give up power. He was happy to refuse power. And that takes character. And the cynics among us will shake their heads and they'll say, oh, yes, but what about all his moral failings? What about all his compromises? What about all the ways in which he was not to our liking? To that I say, he could have been worse. Have you considered that? Measured against the ideal? Which of us comes through perfect? And yet, a certain humility in being able to set aside personal ambition is important to note. And it is not to be underestimated in its difficulty or in its importance to the peace and well-being of a free people who wish to remain free. Some additional quotes, if you will, along these lines. I have three from the Proverbs, which are very relevant, I submit, to your consideration. The first, Proverbs 11, 10 through 11. When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices, and when the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness by the blessing of of the upright, a city is exalted, but by the mouth of the wicked it is overthrown. Must we all be treated to lectures about spirituality, propriety, the gospel, culture wars, etc.? Anytime a Christian speaks of the city, relative the righteous and the wicked. And notice here that the overthrowing of a city begins with what the wicked are saying. What the wicked say is the beginning of the end for a city. But shouldn't we want it to go well with the righteous? Shouldn't we want the city to rejoice? Proverbs 14.34 Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Must we all be subjected to shaming and ostracization? about being carnal and fleshly and selfish, ambitious, conceited, about cultural Christianity and needing to remember heaven, the hereafter. Anytime a Christian talks about a nation, relative righteousness and sin, notice here that nations and peoples, including but not limited to Israel, are reproached or else exalted, based on righteousness and sin. Shouldn't we want our country 
to be exalted? Shouldn't we want our people to be free of reproach? Proverbs 29.2 When the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. Do we all have to be oppressed by the finger-wagging about materialism and prosperity gospels? Anytime a Christian talks about increase, notice here that the people celebrate when the righteous are doing well. That means it's common knowledge and everyone is aware and can see that the righteous are prospering. Shouldn't we want the righteous to profit and prosper and derive benefit in public life? Shouldn't we want that? I think so. But we have to take care. We, we have to take care how we define our terms. Do we know who the righteous are and who the wicked are? Do we believe that there is any such thing as a difference? We have to. We have to. If we don't know the difference between the righteous and the wicked, we're lost. And it's just grains of sand in the hourglass between us and ruin. You want to not be ruined as a people, as a nation, as a country? Know the difference between the righteous and the wicked. And know that it is good that the righteous do well, that it goes well with them, that when there is righteousness in a nation, that nation prospers, that when the righteous increase, the people rejoice. Know that. If you know that, then you have a hope and a prayer. Otherwise, no. That's all the time I've got for this episode, I'm afraid. Or, as the case may be, you may be relieved. (laughs) As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.